Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1968, Chicago won a significance beyond time and place, an observer wrote. It became an event in history, like Waterloo or Versailles or Munich. As the nation watched in rage and disbelief, there were those who wondered whether the democratic process itself was being torn apart. much like any other convention, part circus, part celebration. But underneath the fanfare, fury over the war in the jungles of Vietnam would unleash a struggle for control of the Democratic Party. My main memory of 1968 that it was crowded and noisy and smoky and turbulent, and at any minute I expected somebody to punch me in the nose. The leading candidate was Hubert Humphrey. As Lyndon Johnson's vice president, the nomination should have been his for the taking. But when he arrived in Chicago, many questioned whether he could hold his party together long enough to win the election. Well, say, good to see you. Great. Humphrey wanted to be president worse than anything in the world. He had dreamed of it all his life. And throughout his career, you see this enormous drive to uh, become president and, and to get to the top of the political heap. As vice president and as candidate, Humphrey could not free himself from the grip of the president. One place and one person dominated my life that election year, Humphrey wrote. The place, Vietnam. The person, Lyndon Johnson. Everyone knew Humphrey as the president's man, a captive candidate. When he first went to the ranch after he became Johnson's running mate, uh, the first thing Johnson did was put him on a horse with a big Stetson and uh, showed that he was Johnson's property, basically, and was dominated in every way by Johnson. Uh, Mr. Vice President, in what ways do you disagree with President Johnson's positions with reference to Vietnam? Well, would you mind if I just stated my position on Vietnam? Because the President of the United States is not a candidate, and I did not come here to repudiate the President of the United States. I want that quite clear. Publicly, Humphrey was supporting Johnson's war policies. He could not forget the president's reactions months earlier when he had tried to carve out his own position on Vietnam. I recall waiting for him to come back uh, late in the evening to see what happened. And uh, he came back and uh, washed his hands obsessively in the washroom and, and uh, didn't want to tell me. 
Well, finally, he told me that uh, President Johnson had berated him, said he would cause the death of his son-in-law and other American boys in Vietnam if he broke with the Johnson policy. Johnson would have to publicly attack him as expedient and, and trying to hurt uh, his own efforts toward peace. Humphrey backed down. It was the price he would have to pay for the nomination. In 1968, a president still controlled the nominating process. So if Humphrey had wanted to uh, denounce the war policy or um, announce his opposition to it or something, Johnson could have retaliated by denying them, him the nomination, and I have no doubt that he would have. When Humphrey chose to play by the rules, he became the representative of Johnson's war. What he failed to calculate was the force of opposition building within his own party. Challenging Humphrey were delegates led by anti-war candidate Senator Eugene McCarthy. McCarthy had based his entire candidacy on his opposition to the war. On the convention floor, his forces would lead a battle, an insurrection against party regulars for the soul of the Democratic Party. In the streets of Chicago, another rebellion was taking place. Young people from all over the country had been arriving in the city. They had come to demand an end to the war. Coordinating the demonstrations was a coalition of peace groups, led by veteran pacifist David Dellinger. David Dellinger was the soul and the heart of the movement, a real pacifist who believed that at some point the goodness of the American people would come forth and would force the government to stop an unjust and unmoral war. By 1968, the anti-war movement had been waging its campaign for four years. But the war kept escalating. Dellinger believed the time had come to raise the ante. We felt that we had to go from protest to resistance on a national scale because the, the war was getting uh, expanding hor hor horrendously. There were 200 GIs coming home in body bags every week and uh, somehow we had to stop it. The demonstrators feared that the convention would be a rubber stamp of the Johnson war policies and they wanted a massive and highly visible show of opposition you'd have to ask why the Democrats, not the Republicans. Um, partly because we were the children of the Democratic Party. We were the children of the Democratic ideal. We expected nothing from Republicans. We expected everything from Democrats. To organize the protest, Dellinger had recruited Rennie Davis, a longtime activist, and one of the most influential leaders of the anti-war movement, Tom Hayden. Though considered a militant by many, Hayden had agreed to keep the Chicago protest peaceful. Political pigs, your days are numbered. We are the second American revolution. We are winning. Yippee! Also in Chicago were the Yippies, a fringe group led by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Their outlandishness appealed to young people already in revolt against what they called white bread America. Mr. Hoffman, why are the yippies here? Abby. Abby, why are the yippies here? Well, let's uh, 
Since we're not a uh, carefully structured organization, you'd have to ask each person. Hoffman and Rubin had splashed onto the scene in the fall of 1967, announcing that they planned to levitate the Pentagon. The Pentagon is going to rise into the air. And when it gets about 300 feet in the air, it's going to start to vibrate. Slowly at first, and then a little quicker. And all the evil spirits are going to pour out. The Pentagon's a very evil... Abby Hoffman was a kind of world-class character. A true believer that if you said it loud enough, funny enough, and wild enough, you get people to listen. And maybe P.T. Barnum-like, there was a sucker born every minute. He was going to rope them in for good causes in his mind. But he was a character. Together, Hoffman and Rubin became darlings of the media. Months before the convention, Hoffman and Rubin had turned their public relations savvy to Chicago. And for that, they invented the Yippies. Yippie was born in a kind of dope dream. And as they sat around, getting high, they started playing around with words and came up somehow with Yippie. Yippie, Youth International Party. Yippie, Yippie I O K I A. And they were off and running. The Yippies saw Chicago as their ultimate stage for political theater. In a typical irreverent gesture, the Youth International Party would run a pig for the presidency. And they announced that they were planning to bring half a million people to Chicago for a festival of life. The Festival of Life sounded like anything and everything cutting loose, from nude swimming in Lake Michigan to cavorting at all hours in the parks to sharing dope all night, all day long. They wanted a permit to put on their anarchist ball. The Yippie request outraged Chicago's mayor, Richard J. Daley. The mayor was one of the most powerful Democrats in the country. And President Johnson was counting on Daley, a law and order man, to keep control of the convention. Mayor Daley was really the last of the great old big city titans. Um, he was unlike anybody else in the country at the time. He was in charge. Daley had a national convention to run. But now his city was facing the prospect of thousands of hostile demonstrators. And the yippie tactics were only fueling his anxiety. The types of threats that are made are absolutely preposterous, but just as absolutely believed by the populace and by the mayor. They talked about dumping LSD in the water filtration plant. They were going to get the whole city high. We're going to run away with the daughters of convention delegates. Sometimes they said they'd have huge nude-ins at Lake Michigan. They were going to break windows and turn over automobiles and use Molotov cocktails. They didn't really digest each and every one of these threats, but I think a siege mentality set in. By mid-July, the protesters had repeatedly sought permits for their demonstrations. But the city was stalling. They wanted to be able to do anything that they wanted to do. They wanted to march in the street uh, they wanted to block traffic. Uh, they wanted use of the parks all night when the law was that the parks have to be clear at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, they, they just didn't want any law to apply against them. 
they wanted to cause trouble. It was as obvious as the nose on your face. Daly was gambling that without permits, there would be no demonstrations. But the protest leaders had come too far to turn back. We are pressing to be able to talk with the mayor and to hope that he will come to his, uh, shall I say, good senses and to grant the permits for the kind of activity that uh, it is absolutely necessary take place during a convention in wartime. With just a month to go and still no permits, a desperate Rennie Davis reached out to Roger Wilkins at the Justice Department. And I sit down across from this fella who looks just like all those kids who went to the University of Michigan with me in the 50s. So you wonder whether it's a put on. My purpose was to really persuade him that we really wanted a large mobilization, which meant for us that it had to be peaceful. I talked to him for a long time, trying very hard to listen deep under his words. I just got a sense of a person who was telling me the truth, who was truly concerned, um, who had actually made real efforts to engage the city. Wilkins agreed to approach the mayor. We went in to see Daly, and I began to tell him about the conversation that I had with Rennie. And about five minutes into the conversation, red started coming up from Daly's collar. All up in these jowls, which seemed larger and larger and larger to me. And he launched into a monologue which I believe lasted about 25 minutes. And when I tried to interrupt and say, but Mr. Mayor, he would just raise his voice. When I walked away from Daly's office, I thought, we're gonna have violence. He's gonna unleash his police department. Richard J. Daly was the embodiment of power so tightly wrapped up in its own righteousness that it can't hear any words but those words that are echoed back out of its own mouth. So he made it almost a morality play. For those determined to protest the war in Vietnam, Chicago had become a magnet. I remember just before the convention, my mother called me up and said, uh, and she lived in New York, and she said, uh, be careful. I said, careful of what? I said, you know, this is America. I'm going out to uh, Chicago. I'm going to express a minority point of view. I'm going to lose, and I'm going to go home. And I just didn't see what, uh, um, what the big deal was. When the plane landed, there were ranks of soldiers all over the place, and we felt like we flew into the middle of a, a military camp. I was looking around and saying to myself, I, I've never seen anything like this in my life. There was a phone strike on, so the phones weren't working. There was a taxi cab strike on, so you couldn't take a taxi cab. There had a bus strike, so you couldn't take a bus. And it became very clear that the city, and particularly the places where the delegates were, we were under siege. At Lincoln Park, the protest leadership organized self-defense sessions for the benefit of the cameras. The press had arrived in droves, and the demonstrators were eager to get their attention. 
the first time that the media came out to film a snake dance, I think Rennie Davis or Tom Hayden said, no, we aren't really ready for this because, yeah, we got to train a little bit more. And, you know, come back in a couple of days. It's, it's a very grueling thing to do, bouncing from one leg to the other, holding arms with somebody. There's a picture of me somewhere in it, bouncing up and down and looking rather silly, I think. But it, it did look impressive for the 30 seconds they did on the news. On Sunday, the day before the convention, 2,000 demonstrators gathered in Lincoln Park, some 10 miles away from the convention amphitheater. Lincoln Park that first day, it was quite festive. It was both festive and tense, depending, I think, on who you were. If you were gathered around Allen Ginsberg going, Om, uh, it felt very mellow. But for many of us, there was a lot of tension in the air and a real sense of foreboding because the police were all around. It was small. It would have been one of our smaller demonstrations. We were getting much bigger crowds, 100,000 in Washington. It would have been a pimple, a footnote, a, a blemish on history. But they made a mistake. Protest leaders argued that the demonstrators had nowhere to sleep but the park. Daly is enough of a, of a politician to know that those are tactics on the part of the other side, that if uh, he allows them to stay all night in the park, then they'll ask for something else that they think is unreachable. Uh, it's, it's a game. Uh, their objective is not to be able to sleep in the park. Their objective is to have a fight with policemen. In about uh, 11 o'clock, the police lined up in a long line, uh, almost shoulder to shoulder. Must have been, must have been a couple thousand of them. And we were aware that at 11 o'clock, the stagecoach was going to turn into a pumpkin or something was going to happen. The police appeared with helmets and uh, gas masks, and there's these tear gas canisters fired into the park, kind of as an announcement that they're coming. Uh, the tear gas is pretty uh, awful stuff. And there's panicking and running, and everybody's running out of the park and falling over each other. And then the police come after them with billy clubs. The police just went, went wild. You had large men with long clubs whacking anybody they could get their hands on. And if they caught somebody, they had them on the ground, were kicking them until they seemed to be submissive, and then they would move on and grab the next one. Their willingness to use violence was so far beyond anything any of us had anticipated. I just don't understand to this day how people can think that if a police officer collars somebody at the corner of Balbo in Michigan, they're under arrest. They don't have a right to struggle with policemen. They don't have a right to try to run from policemen. See, all little kids on side streets all of America know all this stuff. A group of intellectuals from the suburbs of the 1950s and 60s didn't understand that. They were spoiled brats who thought that they knew better than everybody. And an awful lot of the kids were just involved in it for the thrill. Um, but they were being encouraged to do things they shouldn't do by these sophisticated guys 
whose idea was to uh, really shame the United States government. We dared to defy their authority, and that was a fundamental provocation, and no more was needed. We weren't ready to storm the Bastille. Rather, in this case, the Bastille decided to storm us. And when they made that decision to kick us out of the park that night, to not let us just hang out and sleep over, the die was cast. Monday, August 26th. The Democrats convened at the International Amphitheater to nominate their presidential candidate. As convention host, Richard Daley felt he had to distance the Democratic Party from the anti-war protests. We have no flag burners in this Democratic National Convention, and I don't think any of them would belong here. But you 89 million Americans would be watching the convention on television, more than any other political event of its time. And the mayor was concerned that the party appear united and optimistic, no matter what went on in the streets. And by 1968, television was the medium for the convention. The conventions existed for television. And people looked to television for what was happening. But the network's ability to broadcast anything outside of the amphitheater was severely constrained. Daly blamed it on a strike by electrical workers. The networks could still cover the demonstrations, but they had no way to broadcast these scenes live. I have always believed that Daly and the Democratic machine of Chicago, which was also very friendly to the president, Lyndon Johnson, were trying to prevent the coverage of anything that happened outside the convention hall. And the way they did that was to deny us connections. It was all an attempt to let us cover what they wanted to see covered and not let us cover what we wanted to cover. It was becoming clear that the story was in the streets with the protesters. Humphrey had come to Chicago expecting triumph. He was met with scorn. A man wearing a McCarthy button shouted, you used to be our hero. He was under enormous pressure from the left, from the right, from the center. But the big surprise that he feared most was that Johnson would change his mind and come to Chicago and present himself as a candidate. Even from his ranch in Texas, Johnson would control Humphrey and the convention. At the platform hearings, Humphrey told his staff to negotiate a Vietnam position that made concessions to the peace forces. He believed it held the only hope of uniting the Democrats. Humphrey then called the president with the compromise. Johnson struck it down. Humphrey would have nothing to offer the anti-war delegates. The peace delegates were determined their views on Vietnam be heard. They brought their own Vietnam plank to the floor. They were not there as Democrats. They had no interest particularly in democratic politics. They were fundamentally interested in getting that peace plank through. By and large, we were outsiders, and we were imposing on them, and they made it very clear to us. We didn't belong there. Um, they wanted us to go away. To keep a tight rein on the proceedings, a high level of security was ordered inside the hall. The ushers came from a company called Andy Frame, and if they would see that you were wearing a McGovern or a McCarthy pin, they would stop you. 
and you would take your badge, which was on a string around your neck, and you would hold it up. And no matter which side you would hold up, the, uh, the Andy frame would grab your arm by the elbow and twist it this way and say, I have to see the other side. And they would pick your arm up so you really, your shoulder hurt. They didn't want anybody to speak up, act up, or get in their way. As Monday blurred into Tuesday, tensions in the hall escalated, and the fighting between the demonstrators and police intensified. The police officers saw order as their job. The protesters saw disorder as their goal. Both sides worked themselves up to get angrier and angrier. The Chicago policemen who were in the streets of Chicago were from blue-collar families. They didn't have any opportunities to go to college. And I think those Chicago police officers didn't understand why these kids, the sons and daughters of the affluent, were out in the streets trying to wreck the system. I felt that they were just uh, young students that had very little life behind them and a lot of life in front of them, and they were easily swayed, and uh, that they were, I guess, venting their anxieties out on society, and we were there to stop them. But when we had to obey lawful commands from our superiors to clear the streets, we did it, usually fast and efficiently and effectively. We were provocative. There's no question we were provocative. Uh, but again, our provocation was with a purpose we thought that we were being provocative in order to expose the true nature of the convention and of the police and of the army. We didn't want that true nature to go unnoticed. The fighting was becoming a nightly ritual, and the park was turning into a war zone. The first thing that would occur would be these great cannons that would billow tear gas into the park get this kind of eerie, ghost-like radiance coming through the mist. And then out of this fog would come these men in helmets and, and slapping their, their nightsticks against their hand and these eerie masks that protect themselves from the gas. You just felt like you were in a science fiction movie. The toll it takes on your body is unreal. You've got to build yourself up to where you think you've got enough guts to go into the riots. And then after it's through, a lot of times I went home and I had a stiff drink and uh, pegs of cigarettes just to come down. And then you go to bed after a couple of hours, try to get some sleep. You generally couldn't sleep. You'd wake up the next morning or the next afternoon like a truck hit you. And then it was time to go right back in. And you're so nervous. You're wondering when you're going to get hurt. You don't know if somebody's going to throw a brick at you or a Molotov cocktail or human excrement, which they threw at us. Uh, you just don't know. Uh, one particular hippie that got knocked down started hollering, medic, medic, and it seemed like in the middle of a riot, the whole riot stopped. Two hippies with armbands, with crosses on their arms for armbands, came out, ran to this guy, picked him up. We all stood there and watched took them off to the side, and then the riot continued. Tuesday night, 
The peace delegates had been promised a televised debate on Vietnam in prime time. But now the convention managers were delayed, pushing the debate past midnight when the audience would be far smaller. The fact that we were going to talk about what was going on in Vietnam while all of the country watched was not something that the administration wanted. Instead, what the nation saw were scuffles breaking out between peace delegates and security. Viewers were shocked to see a television reporter drawn into the fray. By one in the morning, enraged peace delegates demanded the convention adjourn and the debate be rescheduled. When we weren't recognized being our polite adult selves, then we started to yell. And we yelled, let's go home. Let us out of here. We can't take this anymore. With the convention disintegrating into chaos, Daly gave the convention managers the signal to clear the hall. The question is on the motion. So many is in favor, vote aye. Aye! Those opposed, no. The ayes have it. Accordingly, the House stands adjourned until 12 o'clock. Minutes later, Daly sent the National Guard into the streets to back up the weary Chicago police. The demonstrators had massed across the street from the Hilton Hotel, which housed the Humphrey and McCarthy headquarters as well as hundreds of delegates. The crowd was bigger and more vocal than on previous nights, and the police, overwrought, were easily triggered. Late into the night, Tom Hayden rallied the crowd. August 28th. All the passions that had streamed into Chicago would be exhausted. By day's end, the politics of law and order would win out over the politics of protest. Wednesday is the day that it's all about. This is what 1968 has come to. This is the day that the war is to be ratified and Humphrey is to be nominated. It would have been best for us if that whole day had never existed, had been blotted out from the calendar. The whole day's debate was a negative for us. There was nothing good which could have come out of it. At noon, the debate over Vietnam began. There's a minority among us, represented over in Grant Park, who would substitute beards for brains, License for liberty and they would substitute riots for reason. The anti-war forces now had their chance to argue their case before a national audience. This is the moment of truth for the Democratic Party. 
struggle on the floor of this convention will determine whether we have the courage to say that we were wrong and even greater courage to chart a course towards peace in Vietnam. I am supporting a plank that gives the American voters some hope for an end to this miserable war. We are not outside the mainstream of the Democratic Party. We agree with the voters in every Democratic primary, stop the war. At the same time, at the Banshell and Grant Park, 15,000 people had gathered for a rally that the city had grudgingly authorized. But the legality of the gathering did nothing to reassure the police. There was a group of policemen, and uh, they were in a fighting mood by then. I noticed their gloves, and they, there was a type of glove that they filled with shot. Uh, uh, Birdshot. Uh, it makes the, you know makes a punch be a very damaging thing. And I yelled at them, and I talked to their commander and told them to make these guys drop these things. And they did. They put them all on the ground when I told them to. But it was that same group that about an hour later went sailing into the crowd. As the rally got underway, a teenage boy climbed the flagpole near the band shell and lowered the American flag. The police see this uh, terrible thing that's happening to the American flag, and they decide to come in and make an arrest. And as they arrest, they, you know, they blow the crowd away that's around the flagpole, and move in with great force, and pull this person out. The arrest riled the crowd. The protest organizers felt they were losing control. I told people, sit down, sit down, don't throw anything. That's exactly what they want. They want to start a riot. They are provoking us, but we do not want to confront them now. To prevent a confrontation, Rennie Davis rushed over to set up a line of marshals between the police and the restless demonstrators. And then I turned with a bullhorn to face the police and acknowledge that we have a permit for this and we're asking the police to withdraw to relieve the tension. Well, that just really set everything off. Here they come! As they approached me, Many, many policemen shouting, really, kill Davis. And it had a, that word kill had a certain ring to it that was not just a slogan. The police targeted Davis and beat him unconscious. And then all hell broke loose. The police started marching into the crowd, but they were marching in phalanx and simply beating up or beating back anybody uh, that was in their way. This assault in broad daylight was a turning point. Four days of running battle had fractured the protest leadership. David Dellinger believed in the symbolic power of a peaceful march to the amphitheater. He never wavered in his commitment to nonviolence. But Tom
Tom Hayden was abandoning that position and now urged guerrilla tactics in the streets. The people are going to line up to try to march out, and at that point, they're going to be tight enough on this side for us to come in and start just telling them in small numbers to move to the loop. I was trying to keep my head while I was going out of my mind. I was reacting to the fact that Rennie was down bleeding somewhere, uh, that I thought Dave was leading us uh, in his good-natured way into a deadly trap where we would all be arrested. As Dellinger tried to calm the crowd, Hayden confronted him. He came up and said, we are taking over the platform and the microphone now because the police have done these terrible things and you kept calling for nonviolence and that's not realistic. Finally, I looked him in the eye and said, that's not true, I'm not giving up the microphone. Tom Hayden grabs the microphone away from Dave Dellinger in a kind of passionate anger, he tells the audience, listen, if blood is going to flow, let it flow all over the city. Let this whole stinking city be disrupted and violated. He lets it all loose in that speech. They're not going to let us out of this park in any organized way. You should float out in small groups. Don't get trapped in some kind of large organized march which can be surrounded. I'll see you in the streets. Davis getting hurt changed Tom Hayden's perspective on what was happening in Chicago. He started to really believe, I think, his most wild rhetoric. The police were like the Gestapo in Germany. Something was really wrong. You could be killed here for no reason. It's going to be worse than I get Yeah, but the point is that will develop. <laughs> I changed into a wacky disguise. I think I had on a beard and a football helmet. My goal is very primal, to get back to the Conrad Hilton so that if they were going to beat us up or gas us, that it would happen in full view of the convention delegates and the American people. A few demonstrators followed Hayden to the Hilton, but many, 6,000 in all, chose peaceful protest and lined up behind David Dellinger. People wearing helmets should move to the outside of the line. Waiting for them was a line of policemen. Dellinger tried to negotiate with the police. He had done this in other cities where officials ultimately had relented. There'll be no march. There'll be no march. There's no permit to march. Chicago's police had been told that the demonstrators fully intended to disrupt the convention. What they had heard at the band shell only inflamed their fears. There will be no march today. I felt that I had led this group of people into a trap. People who had been committed to nonviolence were now saying it doesn't work. They killed Martin Luther King and we've got to take on new methods. I just felt like a total failure. The police began to break up the line. Thousands of demonstrators headed for the bridges leading out of the park. There they were stopped by armed units of the National Guard. The guard was under orders to keep the protesters away from the amphitheater and the delegate hotels. As the demonstrators were being kept at bay, the delegates were finally voting on the peace plank and the direction of the war. 
On the Minority Report, the yeas are 1,041 and one. The peace forces were handed a crushing defeat. And the Minority Report is not agreed to. The convention had voted to support the war. Humphrey's nomination was a foregone conclusion. The rebels broke into their anthem. To drown them out, party managers directed the band to strike up another tune. Democrats could no longer listen to each other. desolate. All of the work that we had done, all of the effort we had made, had, it seemed to us, come to naught. And although we knew better, I suppose, in our minds, our hearts were broken. I don't remember if it was day or night. I don't remember who was there. I just remember all of a sudden the floor was empty. I mean, I don't even remember the people leaving. And there was a group of people marching in a circle in front of the podium and they had flags and I got up and I started to, to march with them and I eventually held one of the flags we marched around and I, I was sweating it was like I was in a, a football game or some kind it was just a, a, a tremendous emotional outlet I don't think anyone said anything we just uh, just did it fear was coming true. 7,000 demonstrators had made their way to the intersection in front of the Hilton. There were taunts and ugliness. It was designed to provoke. It was designed to arouse. It was designed to show hatred, cursing, anger, fury. You can't ask us to protest politely so that you can dismiss us. We're going to protest with every fiber of our being. And that kind of sense allows you to go back and put yourself in the way of a billy club. I really don't know what started the intersection to go up for grabs, but the whole place just went up for grabs. Half an hour into the standoff, the police began to retake the intersection. We were ordered to sweep the street and clear the street, and that's what we did. They went any way they could put into the wagon. Some went easy, some didn't go so easy. And uh, when they don't, then you take them any way that they want to come, which sometimes is not the nicest way, but they'll get in the wagon anyways. But who were we? We were their sons and daughters. We weren't some invading army from the outside. It was their worst nightmare. 
we were an invading army from the inside. And I think it's part of what freaked them out. Yeah, it was a wild scene. I really thought that the police had lost their cool. Uh, and they, were, they were totally out of control for a while. I thought the protesters were a bunch of fools. Uh, and uh, I, I felt terrible. I thought it was an awful thing to see. The crowd chanted, the whole world is watching, convinced at the sight of young people being beaten by police would stir a public outcry. Far above the fighting on the 25th floor of the Hilton, Humphrey waited for the nominating process to begin. He had survived the minefields of a difficult political season. Now he was in reach of victory. He's very tense. Everyone knows what's going on downstairs. He goes over to the window a couple times, and uh, uh, one of those windows in the suite was open, and uh, some of that tear gas is wafting up those 20 floors. And uh, you see him go over there and kind of shake his head, and then walks away into his own secret hell. At 8 o'clock, the delegates gathered to name their presidential candidate. I came here from San Francisco to talk to you about Hubert Horatio Humphrey. As the nation focused its attention on the convention floor, the fighting in front of the Hilton subsided. But images of the bloodshed were only now trickling into the broadcast centers. During the nomination process, the monitors for events around the town started to light up. And I was ignoring it because it was over my shoulder and I had enough to do just trying to control what we were showing of events on the floor until Shad Northfield, who was in charge of the outside activities, screamed at me, look at these, you son of a bitch. And I turned around, and there was scenes of police beating up kids in a way that I had not seen before. News executives faced an unprecedented dilemma. Should they cut away from the selection of a presidential candidate to cover an event that had happened earlier that evening? Do I use this or don't I use this? Is it news or is it propaganda? You know, and I don't have time for a seminar. And finally I decided this was news. And that's what we were there for and we had to show it. I told Huntley and Brinkley just enough for them to say what was going on. This is on tape, since again we're not able to cover it live. The tape you're about to see was made about uh, 30 to 40 minutes ago. And we rolled the tape. Hubert Humphrey sat helpless as the American people watched his nomination through a prism of violence and turmoil. I'm sure he must have felt sick at heart that the image being portrayed to the rest of the country was that one of disunity and violence. Obviously, he knew that and knew it would hurt him. Wisconsin! Mr. Chairman, most delegates to this convention do not know that thousands of young people are being beaten in the streets of Chicago. And for that reason, 
I request the suspension of the rule to relocate the convention in another city. Wisconsin is not recognized for that purpose. The reality for the viewing American people was what they saw via their television screen. And the screen was showing them, at a critical moment in the convention, violence, conflict, disorder. And with George McGovern as President of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo's tactics in the streets of Chicago. Well, there was a sense that we were some kind of uh, 1932 Nazi regime uh, enforcing our will in the convention hall with police clubs inside and outside the hall. It was dreadful and added to the public perception that we Democrats could not run a convention, much less a country. Finally, at 11.20, the balloting began. Because of the atrocities in downtown Chicago, Georgia's... Georgia's loyal National Democrats cast their votes only with reluctance. That vote is... Illinois cast 112 votes Mm -hmm. It's just fun, you know, to check to see what you predicted, what happens. Pennsylvania cast two and one-half votes for Senator McGovern. All his life, he had waited for this moment. Humphrey acted the part of the happy nominee, but he was now the leader of a crippled party. There was nothing to celebrate but wreckage. The night Vice President Humphrey was nominated was one of the uh, most dismal that either he or any of us around him have experienced. It was like a wake. Normally you would expect that having won the nomination of your party, culmination of uh, life's ambition for Humphrey, uh, there would be a joyousness, uh, an elation, a desire to get on with the battle in the general election. Instead, uh, everyone was subdued, depressed, uh, speaking in hushed voices, uh, just gritting our teeth, wanting the convention to end. Following Humphrey's nomination, anti-war delegates left the hall for a candlelight march through the streets. One political observer noted, the Democrats are finished. For the demonstrators, the whole world was watching. But opinion polls later showed that a majority of Americans had turned against them. Declaring he represented the non-shouters, the forgotten Americans. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.